This week, the world is in protest, but who can put out all the fires? Why the Defence Secretary has concerns about the state of the Royal Navy fleet? And we talk to one of the soldiers behind the Wavell Room, where voices from across the ranks share their military thinking. I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP. From continent to continent, people have taken to the streets to protest against their governments. From Chile to France, Lebanon to London and Hong Kong to Spain, every issue is different, every government has a different view. The common element is protest. Why? Well, I'm joined by Paul Rogers, who is Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, and Christopher Lee, our own defence analyst. Hello to both of you. Uh, Paul Rogers, the world is not on fire, but have you ever seen such widespread protest on different issues? Well, you, could saw it, you certainly saw it in Europe in the nine, late 1960s, uh, 1968 in particular, and that affected quite a number of countries. What is different this time is that you seem to have problems almost generic. There's, there's something going on behind the scenes, and then there are specifics. For example, in Chile, it's become very violent. It started off with protests, basically because younger people, especially students, believed they weren't going to get a fair deal in life compared with a much more wealthy elite. Uh, the same is true to some extent in, in Lebanon. What is extraordinary is the sudden outbreak of violence in Iraq against the government, again with 20-25% unemployment and a purportedly rich country because of oil supplies and the oil markets, that shouldn't be happening. There is something going on and I think generically it's one of the problems is economic in that uh, although we've been in a period of 30-40 years of really pretty good economic growth, it's become very much warped towards a particular part of society in so many countries. Then there are the specifics. In Hong Kong it's very clear it's the fear of Beijing, although even there the sheer cost of living for younger people with exorbitant rents is something which causes a sort of added element. So worldwide there is something going on. I think at root, in a generic sense, it is more economic, but there are specifics in every case, whether it's Ecuador, uh, Chile or elsewhere. Mm, and to what extent, Christopher Lee, do you think um, this is the coming together of the power of social media? Well, it's partly that, hasn't it? I mean, it has to be. But it's also, we've got the fact that there is the relationship between people and government is a far more complex matter an uncertain matter than ever it was. And also with younger people who are educated but have no great ambitions and therefore they examine the frailties in their own society. Why do you think the relationship between people and government is more complex? Uh, it's, it's, it's more complex because we know more. At one time you didn't know very much about what your government did. Um, there were more or there were fewer, say, chances to find out. Newspapers didn't cover the sort of things that they cover now, that the social media covers now. And we are bombarded with uh, sort of minor things which become major things in, in our lives because we say, no, 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 that's about us as well. But I think it's certainly this fact that we know more, and some might even say we know too much because we don't know all the arguments and then we listen to the arguments and sometimes those arguments are just as frail as that relationship between uh, a certain part of society. And, uh, and government. I went on one of those marches in Trafalgar Square, uh, this is because of climate change, and I tell you, it wasn't a rich guy on the march. Um, it was, everybody had the same 
concerns the same social and, and economics, very much economic concerns. And it was almost as if they were protesting about something entirely different. And they were using this as a way to imagine the protest and, how, and what it, effect it might have on government. To what extent, Paul Rogers, do you think, no matter what the catalyst is for the original protest, that the actual use of social media, encrypted messages, is being used worldwide for people to coordinate around the world, no matter what their issues are, in a way of expressing themselves? On the encrypted side, yes, I think that's specifically the much more radical movements. But I would agree very much with Christopher's take on this. Uh, there's a more general air of protest, um, and it also gives rise to populist politicians with quick and ready answers. What is, I think, particularly significant is across what we might call the global south, the, the younger countries economically at least, you have had immense and extremely valuable improvements in education and communications. What that means, though, is that people know where they are in life and what their prospects are. We used to talk in Britain about the revolution of rising expectations. There were rich and the poor, but everybody was going to improve. You've moved into an era now in many parts of the world of the revolution of frustrated expectations. And it's the knowledge of how society works more generally and the fact that, well, not the fact, the idea that people can consider there's an inherent um, unfairness in it, which I think is, is one of the, these things driving the protests. And that, of course, is before the, the, the big issue of the future comes up, which, of course, will be climate change. But even now, we're having this as a major problem. Uh, and it's not something which will go away, even if specific examples in specific countries can be dealt with more sensibly. So irrespective of the number of wars or conflicts that are going on, how unstable do you think an era we're living in? Um, more unstable than we think. The economic drunk of Edwin Brooks about 45 years ago said what we've got to avoid is, quote, a crowded, glowering planet of massive inequalities of wealth buttressed by stark force, yet endlessly threatened by desperate people in the global ghettos. And what he was about was if things went wrong, they've not gone completely wrong, but they ain't going right. And we're getting rather more of a move towards that dystopia than I would like to think. Mm. Uh, we spoke briefly there about uh, people protesting about climate change and the US will definitely withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. President Trump has confirmed that. Um, what does that mean, Paul, exactly? I think it's pretty disastrous, but uh, I mean, Trump is absolutely wrong. I mean, in the last three or four years, people have at last belatedly woken up to the fact that this is the biggest security issue for our time and the biggest human issue, probably even transpires, transcends the economic problems we were looking at. And Trump basically is part of a group and includes um, people in, well, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, certainly the Australian government of recent generations and the rest, who are basically denying climate change because it is easier to run the world without having to face the fact that we've got to have almost a revolution of lifestyles. Trump is very bad news in that sense, as indeed was Bush, and we lost best part of a decade then. Of course, this time it is different in that many people have woken up to this. There have also been huge good uh, technological developments which make renewables far more cheap, quite often cheaper even than coal or even oil, and certainly on occasions even gas. So there's good news as well. And even in the mm. United States, many of the individual states are just going their own path and ignoring what Trump is about. To that extent then, if people are ignoring Trump in the States, can you just remind us what the US was supposed to do under this agreement and how much of a cost it will actually be to the environment? 
when he withdraws? Well, the, the United States is one of the biggest emitters. It's second only to China, and I think per capita of the larger countries by far the worst. So basically, if it goes its own way and just doesn't do the cuts, then we'll, we'll, we'll have a worldwide impact. The one that has to cut even more is China, but that has far more people, so proportionally isn't producing so much. But the United States also provides other countries like you know, Brazil under Bolsonaro with an excuse for doing the same. And so you have a number of countries, and one has to include, I think, uh, Putin in this, because Russia is so dependent on oil and gas exports that he doesn't pay much attention to climate change. So overall, it's actually pretty bad news. But as I say, a significant minority of the population in the United States is living in states who take a much more sensible view of the future. When he's um, really trumpeting the view that he wants the US to become a global energy superpower as opposed to uh, being the cleanest environmental country in the world, to what extent do you think that might in itself kind of fuel a conflict between two sides of the argument, which could end up in violence? It could do, but I think, in fact, uh, Trump basically is behind the times. And the change in the public mood in many countries, uh, particularly across Europe and in the United States as well, is quite staggering. I mean, in the last 12 months, there's been a major change. And in that way, I think he's actually going to be left behind, but not before a lot of damage has been done. And I think that is a loss for all of us. Paul Rogers, thank you. Still to come, why the Australian newspapers are blacking out their front pages in protest and military thinking outside the box with the Wavell Room. The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has indicated a quarter of the Royal Navy fleet is not up to operational standard. Mr Wallace gave details of the number of vessels currently undergoing maintenance or unable to sail to MPs on the Defence Select Committee. Uh, we have three Type 45s available off the six. Uh, we Off the Type 23s available, we have currently nine of the 13. We should write to you the detail, but please do. No, otherwise, no, I'm going yeah, to go no, through my rather limited yeah. no, no, I, difference I, I, between batch two and batch two. Well, he said that of 76 vessels in the surface fleet, 57 were available with 19 undergoing maintenance and repair. Christopher Lee, how serious do you think this is? I think it is very serious. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, the Defence Secretary wouldn't have said this to the Defence Select Committee. However, it is not as bad as the Navy normally works. The Navy works in thirds, and so you have a third of your ships actually operational, a third of your ships that have been operational just coming up and are off operations or are working up to one, and then you have a third of your ships which are in dry dock going through a two or three year um, refit uh, program. So the Navy is holding his own, I would have said, but it's not so much the numbers of ships, it's the sort of ships and the duties that they do. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into a worse state when the... Uh, when the carriers become operational um, and when they will need certain types of ships to actually support them. Mm. Well, let's hear how the Defence Secretary, how serious he thinks it is. If I had more of our current fleet working as opposed, then I would have much more freedom to deploy uh, to meet some of our ambitions and tasks. So, so there are two parts to this, and I've made it very clear to the First Sea Lord, is one of my priorities, is to get what we've got working. So, a um, sense of frustration you hear there, Christopher. Do you know what he's talking about when he talks about having this lack of freedom to deploy? 
Well, it's a freedom to deploy. The first thing is they haven't got enough people to go and drive the ships. And so one of those Type 45s, which is the finest air defense uh, destroyer in the world, one of those uh, Type 45s is sitting alongside, or was sitting alongside, because it couldn't get enough hands. Now, the other thing is, is rethinking how you do this in certain parts of the world. Um, if you go back to the 1960s or before the 1968 uh, removal of the, of the British fleet from the uh, Far East, what happened was a ship would stay where it was in the Far East, and you'd send out uh, parts, you'd send out uh, men uh, in those days only, and you would have a, a thing called a trickle draft. In other words, you, 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 you book, you, instead of changing the whole ship's company, you would actually sort of trickle people through one at a time. Now, that's been done at the moment with HMS Montrose, and it's been highly successful. So I think perhaps the way you manage those ships is something which uh, Mr. Wallace is going to have a chat with the, the first sea lord about it and say, can the Navy rethink how it drives the Navy? Yes, um, and it's just a question of uh, we go along then to the Treasury and say, can we have some more money because we're doing it properly? Mm, uh, we have the news from the MOD that HMS Audacious, the newest Duke class submarine, is going to be 17 more months until it's ready. There's a delay there. How serious is that? I thought that was 22 months, actually, about three or four months well, it ago. It could be. Who knows? <laughs> yes. How serious? Uh, it's, it's always serious when a ship doesn't get put together. But in, in fact, Audacious is, is a new ship. New, new type of uh, equipment, etc. And it's because they've discovered things they ought to be putting in that ship or, uh, or putting that vessel. Um, and they say, OK, well, it'll take a bit more to do it. You do it, and you do it, and you do it, and the Navy's always been the same. Now, Australia's biggest newspaper rivals have made a rare showing of unity by publishing redacted front pages in a protest against press restrictions. Earlier this week, the newspapers showed blacked-out text beside red stamps marked secret. The protest is aimed at national security laws, which journalists say have stifled reporting and created a culture of secrecy in Australia. So why are we talking about this? Well, our reporter Paul Osborne explained to me earlier from Brisbane, it all goes back to a former British Army soldier who became a whistleblower. It does, yes, Kate. It was uh, David McBride, former captain in the British Army, was in the Blues and Roars, later became a lawyer for the Australian Defence Forces. And it was while there he saw these documents which detailed a growing unease at the top of the Australian military about the culture inside the country's special forces as they were operating across southern Afghanistan. And they included details of specific cases, uh, the alleged killing by special forces of unarmed people, of, of an Afghan boy, for example, in an attempt to cover up that killing. There was uh, talk about a warrior culture developing, of a desensitization among some members of the special forces serving in Afghanistan about a drift in values and concerns that officers were willing to turn a blind eye to some of that behavior. Now, David McBride admits that he leaked those documents to the ABC. Now, the ABC is Australia's version of the BBC. And back in 2017, it published a whole series of these online, ran lots of stories on TV and radio under the title The Afghan Files, detailing all of these allegations about about misconduct, about potentially uh, criminal offences, of murders in some cases, by members of the Australian military, the special forces. Now, you can imagine that did not go down well with the Australian government, who wanted to get to the bottom of it and find out who 
had leaked those files. That led in June this year to a raid on the headquarters of the ABC, a huge raid. And in that raid, they took away computers. They took away vast amounts of raw news footage. They took emails and all sorts of other documents, a really, really broad raid that was shocking, I think, not just to journalists in Australia. It made news in newsrooms around the world for the scale of the operation by the Australian Federal Police, which is Australia's equivalent of the FBI. Now, it's not the only example Mm. of Australia's Federal Police and other agencies in Australia going to extraordinary lengths to go after whistleblowers. Mm. Now, David McBride is due to stand trial next year. As I say, he is not contesting Mm. that he was the source of those leaked documents. What he is saying is that he is a whistleblower, that he was acting in the public interest. This is something the public had a right to know. Tell me a bit more about this kind of mass joint redacting of front pages. What was redacted? Do we know? And how did it come about? It it was a mock-up front page, but it was quite sort of it was quite striking when you walked into the into a news agent in in Australia, as I did on Monday morning, to see all of the newspaper front pages looking exactly the same. It looked like one of those heavily redacted documents with most of the type blacked out, and just at the bottom, just you know, the the, the bits the, the bits that weren't blacked out basically said, you know, why is Australia's government? passing all these new laws, restricting journalists' ability to tell the story. But but what was remarkable about it was that this is a country that has quite a small newspaper industry by comparison with the UK, but it still has some big newspapers and some really big rivalries between those papers, some of them owned by Rupert Murdoch, like The Australian, which is a, a nationwide, fairly serious newspaper. Most cities have one or two newspapers as well, like the Sydney Morning Herald or The Age in Melbourne or the West Australian out in Perth. But every single one, right down to where I am, uh, north of Brisbane, uh, the Sunshine Coast Daily, a tiny little paper full of, no no disrespect, but full of flower shows and and, and cars being stolen, also had on its front page this blacked-out front page. And the point they were making, and the point that an organisation called the Right to Know Coalition is making, is that it's not just that raid on the ABC, it's not just that specific story, uh, alleging misconduct by members of the Australian military. It's a culture that's developing in Australia of intolerance, they say, to investigative journalism uh, and, a, and, and a desire on behalf of the agencies of the state, be they the military, the government, the intelligence agencies, to keep things secret, not because they need to be kept secret to protect people or because their release would be dangerous in some way to the country's national security, but because... They'd just rather people didn't know. Quite shocking. How's the public reacting to this? Well, it's been it's been interesting actually because it's not I say it's not just this case. There is, for example, uh, somebody else who's facing a potential prison sentence of 161 years for exposing abuses inside the Australian tax office. Um, a senior journalist at, a, at another newspaper in Sydney had their home raided because they revealed plans to give intelligence agencies sweeping powers to monitor Australian citizens. Now, the Australian government says it backs a free press, but that no one is above the law. Now, the Right to Know Coalition, who are behind those blacked-out front pages, have done a survey to go with it. They found 87% of the people who answered said Australia should be a free, transparent democracy, but only just over a third of those questioned said that Australia was a free and transparent democracy democracy. Nearly everybody who answered, 88% said that people who call out wrongdoing 
are should be should be protected and that whistleblowers should not be treated like criminals even if they have to break the law in order to expose the truth so the indications are that the public are pretty much on the side of the newspapers of the media industry here in in feeling that the government is a little bit too oppressive in terms of the the way it tries to keep information secret and then punishes people who shine a light on it. That was Paul Osborne reporting from Queensland in Australia. The annual Centre for Army Leadership Conference, which took place at Sandhurst this week, is one way the Army aims to improve the military thinking of all its soldiers. But over the past few years, there's been a new way to develop ideas and defence thinking. The Wavel Room is an online platform where those serving can share ideas about how to make the military better. Well, Georgina Stubbs has been speaking to Major James Afo Frost about how it works. The Wavell Room is an independent British military thinking website. We set it up three years ago when uh, myself and a group of friends were at Staff College. We waited till the end of the course. Um, we'd noticed during the course that a lot of the instruction we had, a lot of the officers that came and met us would talk about different Twitter sites we should be following and different websites we should be looking at that showed different views or uh, had articles written by soldiers and they were generally from other nations. So there's a, a site called War on the Rocks, which is an American one, uh, Strategy Bridge, which is American, The Cove, which is Australian. Lots of people thinking online, lots of soldiers putting their thoughts online, but there was no British space. Uh, that's where we came up with the idea. The Wavell Room itself is uh, a brew room. So when you're at Shrivenham, you have your you have your coffee in between lectures in the Wavell Room, and that's where you stand around queuing for your terrible army coffee and talk about the lectures that you've just you've just watched. And generally, you'll be deciding how you might do things better or what the army is doing wrong. So it's those conversations that we wanted to try and capture, uh, try and develop, and push them out. So that's where the idea came from. And that's where the website came from. How long have you been going now, and how many sort of people do you have visiting the website or subscribing to your weekly emails? So our weekly emails, we have the Sunday Frago that comes out every Sunday. Uh, it's about 1,500 people who subscribe to that. And we're quite proud of that. It has a very high uh, hit rate. About 70% of our articles get open and read, which for what is essentially a, a spam email, I guess, is actually a pretty good rate. Um, it says the website itself, we roughly have about a thousand people a day visit on a on a slow day uh, and then it goes up to about 15 2000 people uh, on a better day since we started three years ago now just shy of three years ago we've had three quarters of a million views so doing pretty well what exactly are you posting on there what's the kind of content that someone might find if they came to visit the site so what we're attempting to do is capture divergent views uh, and different ways of solving military problems so most of our articles are to do with a gripe someone might have or a way someone thinks that we could do things differently, do it better. Uh, and they express it on the, on the website. So we have things that go all the way from you know, minute tactical things. One of our early articles was about radio silence. So you know, ground commanders not using their radios uh, and having the confidence in their orders and in their subordinates not to talk to each other continually. Uh, all the way up to grand strategic thought about whether or not the UK should be investing in its navy or in its land forces. A big, a wide spectrum of stuff. So it's not just the army you focus on then, it's across all, all three services? 
we started with the army and obviously Wavell, uh, he was uh, a field marshal in the Second World War uh, who did command all three services at one point. I think at the end of the war he was made Viceroy of uh, India and so obviously would have seen the full spectrum of command there. Um, based on that we decided to branch out. So uh, a year ago, because we're just coming up to the anniversary, we introduced the Navy, so Trafalgar night last year. We started a push to bring in naval articles and we were incredibly impressed with the quality of stuff we've had from the uh, senior service since we started. Uh, and then before the anniversary of the Battle of Britain, we did a air power push and we have a series of air power articles that we've also had on the website. And we've also had stuff um, from the civil service. So an awful lot. There's a, a well-known online commentator, uh, Sir Humphrey. He's written for us a few times um, and we've had other civil servants write for us too. So that sort of sheds a little bit of light on how you work. So is, is the website formed of um, articles written by contributors then? Everybody who is involved with the website is a volunteer, first of all, and it is independent of the MOD. So we have a, a different vetting service, although I would like to reassure the MOD that we have a vetting service. We check all of our articles properly before we publish them. But you'll notice that some of our articles have pseudonyms and they're people who don't want to be known for a whole series of reasons. Sometimes they're quite high ranking and they want their articles to be read for the quality of the article rather than read for the person who wrote it. Uh, sometimes they do want to be named and they want people within the organisation to, to see that it was them that wrote the article. Um, then we have our team of uh, associate editors who help. So when someone submits an article to us, they uh, pair up with the author, uh, help them refine it, improve it normally, uh, often challenging them, saying they're not going far enough with their recommendations or saying that it's fine to identify a problem but you also need to identify a solution, um, which is important because we don't want to just become a, a platform for people to whinge about things. That's, that's not what it's for. What sort of reaction have you had to, to the website itself then and what, what's been the, the, the biggest um, hit that you've seen on a particular article? Uh, so we've had a mixed reaction to the website. To begin with, uh, the chain of command were not a fan, uh, and did not approve of it, but we've won them over, I think through good behaviour uh, and through continually pushing out something useful. Um, the biggest reaction, I would say, is not our best... Um, it's not the article that's done the best for us. So from a personal point of view, we've had some articles that have come in from junior NCOs or from warrant officers that have done all right. They've had a decent impact. But what we have been able to do is, is take that individual on a, on a development journey. So they have not particularly well articulated themselves, but we've turned their gripe by working with them into something useful that has then been read by an awful lot of people. Uh, in terms of actual success, we've had a fair few of our articles. I, I've been informed by the chain of command that they've read them, they've taken the points on board, which is which is satisfying to hear when that happens. Um, but the most satisfying part of the whole process is is people seeing their stuff being published and uh, appreciating that their views are being heard. That was Major James Athofrost from the Wavell Room speaking to our reporter Georgina Stubbs and Christopher Lee, who was speaking to her there at the Army Leadership Conference in Sandhurst this week. Um, how important are, are these kind of conferences and what really, what kind of progress can be made there? Well, I'm not sure how important the conference is, but the, what he's talking about is really is good news. Um, it has been for three years now. Wavell, the, whose name is on this, 
I found Marshall Wavell in his 1930s and then in the early part of uh, the 1940s in India. He used to say to his staff, most people will start off by writing an article, writing a, a, let's say, a synopsis, and have a load of things to say and never get round to saying it. They need other people to guide them through. And that's exactly what happens with this group, this Wavell group, and it becomes extraordinarily important. Although they did have one thing in that early stretch, and that was a brigadier actually wrote an article to prove that in time of war, you shouldn't have anybody over the age of about 42, 43 commanding a war. Really? He said, yeah, he said they didn't have the mental nor the physical stamina to do this. What he was actually doing was making a case for brigadiers. But it's an interesting thought. It's a thought that you still hear wafted around at Staff College and also at Shrivenham. So in- interesting that there was a, a lot of, um, not a lot of trust in the Wavell Room when it first launched, but now it's been accepted. <laughs> I think so. I mean, you know, there there have been times, certainly at Sandhurst, and and, and, uh, um, people have got the idea that people say the wrong things. I remember an RAF conference there where they had a discussion how to get rid of the royal family. Didn't go down very well at all. No, you'd imagine so. Christopher, thank you very much. Um, That's it for this week. My thanks to our guest, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, and to you for listening. You can join the discussion on Twitter. Follow us at BFBS SITREP. We'll be back again at the same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye for now.